and that you would use it to strengthen us in our faith that we might follow you more closely. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the music I'm playing is actually a trick uh, because you've heard it before. Does anybody happen to know off the top of your head what it is? King's College, Cambridge. Yes. <coughs> Saying, behold, the dwelling of God is with man. I'm not singing it. And he. Can you hear it? Yeah. So what does, it, what, does anybody know what passage that is? They shall be his people. And God himself will wipe. Be with them, be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Revelation, it's the whole beautiful passage about the New Jerusalem, uh, really gorgeous passage, and uh, as we've said before, King's College, Cambridge, was one of Lewis's favorite places, and this is the most beautiful tenor line ever written, I think. So this is then God will wipe away all tears. But if you are ever in Cambridge, go to Evensong because it's like this every night all year with all of these candles and this spectacularly beautiful building. And... Uh, the sound that we get here is only about maybe a tenth of how beautiful it is in there because part of what makes that chapel so special is the acoustics are arguably the best acoustics for choral music in the world, which is pretty strong. So um, I commend that to you. But since this is not music appreciation, we're going to stop. And uh, much as I would love to go on with that, we are going to jump into Lewis. And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to switch gears uh, because we are coming to the end of our class time. So hold on, hold on. (laughs) So in our current format, next week will probably be our last formal class. But there there may be some some subsequent options that we're going to talk about. So just keep that in the back of your mind. So uh, what we're going to do tonight is to just go really quickly over what we talked about last few times on education and then switch to talking about Lewis's views on pain and suffering. And you could do an entire theology school course on Lewis's views on pain and suffering. So this is going to be not even the tip of the iceberg. This is like the little toenail of the iceberg on this topic. But just a refresher about education. Uh, Lewis talked a lot about how very important liberal arts education and the classical sense of that is, that it's all about meaning and purpose, and that when education becomes all about training people for jobs, no matter how important those jobs may be, um, you have lost what the real purpose of education is. Education is not designed uh, to help you get a job and get lots of money, at least not classically. That's not the understanding of it. And Lewis is very, very opinionated, and you can see this bold part. If education is beaten by training, civilization dies. And basically what Lewis believed is that When you lose the framework of meaning and purpose, good and evil, right and wrong, and you don't teach people any of that, you don't teach citizenship, you don't teach virtue, you only teach things that you need to know in order to do a job, then people are not taught anymore, and the result of that is that power is the only game in town, and so it leads to tyranny. So... uh, This is my little outline of drawing out of Lewis's work overall some things that we can be pretty sure of that he would support. 
and an educational framework. The first one is that it's deeply rooted in the Tao. And this is not Taoism or mindfulness or anything. Tao is the phrase that, or the word that Lewis uses to talk about that inner moral core that is common across civilizations, across cultures, across time periods, um, things about that unselfishness is better than selfishness, um, that it's wrong to kill people, um, things like that. And the appendix to the abolition of man uh, is a great read about that. He did a huge research project on that. Uh, and you can imagine a research project by C.S. Lewis, what that would look like. Uh, it's pretty intense. Yes, yes. So um, he also would have said that a Christian worldview is very important. Uh, he believed that it was true and that it needed to, that things should be taught within that framework, allowing for the fact that people might not agree with it, but that it should still be taught within that framework. Classical disciplines, grammar, logic, rhetoric, memorization, um, learning things that are things that have always been learned by students in schools until the past hundred years. Um, in case you didn't realize, there's been this sea change in the educational world, particularly in the past 30 years, but starting about a hundred years ago, where if you looked at what school children were taught, uh, it was not that different than it had been in the 18th century. But we've made up for lost time with that. Um, so grammar, logic, rhetoric. We talked a lot of last time about how rhetoric and logic are skills that just don't exist for most people now. One of the reasons we said rhetoric is so important is that in teaching that, you teach debate. And so you learn how to understand both sides of an issue and appreciate the truth that's on both sides and be able to argue it both ways. Whereas now we have people that are so deeply entrenched in their points of view that they just hurl insults at the people on the other side. And we talked about the, in Henry Fishburne's absence, um, the ad hominem argument that when you don't have anything to say in terms of the argument, you just hurl personal insults at the person on the other side. Not that we see that happening in our culture. I'm not even going to go there. Um, talking about truth, goodness, and beauty. Lewis is very much of the mindset that there are standards of truth, goodness, and beauty that can be taught. And the role of adults in passing along civilization to the next generation is to talk about what those standards are. I don't know how many of you have ever studied about the golden mean. Has anybody studied about the golden mean? Cynthia, would you like to explain it? Okay, all right. All right, so the, gold, the golden mean is something that originated in Greek mathematics, and it is the idea of perfect proportions. And Market Hall at the end of Market Street, uh, where the Confederate Museum is, is a great example of a building that employs the golden mean. It's a use of ratios to develop architectural forms that are pleasing. And the interesting thing about it is that the golden mean is also the same ratio that you find in the, is it the Fibonacci sequence? Is that how it's, I'm forgetting the word. I think that's the person's name. But we often see graphically illustrated like in the Tangled Nautilus or whatever. So the, the, the ratios of that rectangle that continually divides. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But it's, it's absolutely remarkable. And most people have never heard of it because you haven't been taught it, which is just shocking. <laughs> but go home and look it up. I don't have time to go into it tonight. But it is, it is amazing because that's one of the reasons people love Charleston yes. is that most of the architecture here, not all of it, but particularly the 18th century and early 19th century architecture, employs those concepts. And it is pleasing to the eye in a way that I don't know how many, how many of you saw the, the last proposed design for the Clemson um, Historic Preservation Building. It was quite ironic that it was a historic preservation building for the corner of Meeting and George Street. And it was so unbelievably ugly. And people couldn't like really articulate how ugly it was until someone did this brilliant um, 
article that they posted on the internet where there was a picture of the architectural design that they paid like a million dollars for, and then a picture of a three-drawer plastic dresser from Walmart, and they were identical. They were identical. So anyway, truth, goodness, and beauty, these are standards that need to be taught. Um, meaning and purpose. What's the name? M-E-I-N? Golden name? M-E-A-N. Yes, M-E-A-N. So meaning and purpose need to be talked about in the classroom. Uh, liberal arts, again, the whole range of that. Classics, reading old books, uh, very, very, very important because of that idea of chronological snobbery that each age thinks it's so much smarter and better than any that's ever gone before. That why in the world would you want to read Winston Churchill, for example? I mean, what did he know? Or Lincoln or Washington, I mean, why would you ever even want to bother? They're just old white men, you know, and so you shouldn't bother with that. He also was a strong believer in mentoring and tutorials, that part of the job, the responsibility of what it means to be human is to help transmit the knowledge of what it means to be human to the next generation, and that that is best done in the context of relationships. And the interesting thing is that Oxford and Cambridge, a lot of people don't realize this, but the educational system there still is very much like this. So you are appointed a tutor when you enter as a student, and then you have a one-on-one. -on -one. It's not like an advisor. The U.S. idea of advisor is just a joke compared to this. But um, You meet with your... Um, tutor, who's essentially your mentor in your subject area, who is usually a world-class scholar. So last time I was in Oxford, we met with a guy whose name is Simon Harabin, who has Lewis's old post at Maudlin College. He's about 35 years old. He is an absolute genius, devout Christian, probably the world authority on medieval literature now that Lewis has passed away. Uh, but he is the um, he's written just scores and scores of books, but the undergraduate students who are focusing on medieval literature have an hour or two alone with him twice a week for four years. Contrast that to U.S. universities with lecture halls with 350 people and them and a grad assistant that hates being there. So, um, and also Lewis is a huge believer in holidays. He thought he deplored the idea, even back then, that was going around a year-round school. You know, if it's not working, let's just do it more days and it will be better. Um, he believed that holidays were really important to refresh the mind, to encourage creativity. All right, so um, switching gears very abruptly. Um, Lewis wrote a lot about pain and suffering. Um, I think everything that he's written on this topic is worth reading. I'm going to give you just a little teeny tiny overview of some of what's in it tonight that hopefully will inspire you uh, to want to go deeper. So the first thing that Lewis talks about when he is addressing the topic of suffering is that you need to come up with a worldview first. A lot of people want to try to start talking about why is there suffering when they don't have a worldview yet. And you can't really talk about suffering if you don't have a worldview. If your worldview is atheism, that's fine, but you need to admit that and then proceed because suffering is, and how you frame it is deeply connected to what your worldview is. So Lewis says that he believes Christianity makes more sense than any other worldview because it resonates with all of the aspects of our human experience. But he cautions us against thinking that we are going to be able to understand everything, that there are shadows, that there are mysteries, that there are things because God is so much more than we are. Uh, he doesn't use this example, but... For me, it's one that works. It may sound a little feeble to you, but um, how many of you know what Flat Stanley is? All right, so Flat Stanley is a little paper doll, and 
he's cut out, and he usually is used in elementary schools or preschools, and Flat Stanley goes where the student goes, and then you can take a picture with Flat Stanley when you're at the Eiffel Tower. And Flat Stanley went to the Eiffel Tower. Isn't that special? So, but the thing about Flat Stanley is he might have gone to the Eiffel Tower, but Flat Stanley's experience of the Eiffel Tower and your experience of the Eiffel Tower, I hope, were very different from one another. Flat Stanley didn't really understand what was happening there. And what Lewis is trying to say is we're a little bit like Flat Stanley compared to God. That we, we are limited in our dimensions, our thinking, our comprehension. And so thinking that we are going to understand everything that there is to know about God and the nature of humanity and reality and suffering, um, we're just never going to be able to do that. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try and that we shouldn't try to, so we talked about in that first class, love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So worldview, really important. Second thing is Lewis had huge, deep, personal experience with severe suffering, more than most of us, I hope, will ever have to endure. Uh, remember, Lewis's mother died when he was nine. Um, his father basically went crazy. He was sent to a boarding school in another country at the age of nine, um, just had a horrible school experience, very lonely, picked on, bullied, all, just every awful thing that you could imagine. So he finally, about the age of 16, starts finding his stride intellectually. He's a major atheist at this point, but he's loving the life of the mind. And when he goes to Oxford, just having, um, I think he was just turning 18, I think it was 17 when he went, he finally found some kindred spirits, and he became very close friends with this guy named Caddy Moore, who was like the first real friend that he had had since his childhood. And then World War I, of course, is breaking out. They're sent to the trenches on Lewis's 18th birthday, 18th or 19th birthday. And within a couple of weeks, Patty Moore goes missing. Lewis's friends that he is with, who deeply bonded being in the trench together there in World War I, um, grenades come in. He watches friend after friend blown to bits right in front of him, and then he finally gets a bad shrapnel wound to his leg and has to leave. So he is shipped back home. He has a painful and long convalescence. He takes on his dead friend's mother, moves her in, helps start supporting her, and she is <laughs> um, an Irish housewife in the worst sense of that word. <laughs> Bossed Lewis around <laughs> all his life. Well, not all his life, but until he's about 50-something years old when she finally went into a facility. So he was dealing with that every day for the rest of his life. Then, after she dies, he has this strange relationship with Joy Davidman, who was an American a Jewish woman who was a communist who went through a radical conversion to Christianity. She was married to an alcoholic um, who used to beat her and her children regularly. She left him, fled to England, but then the English found out she was a communist and they were going to deport her or that she had been a communist. She was converted at this point, not only to Christianity, but away from communism. But she and Lewis, she knew Lewis because she was a pretty famous writer. Um, she and Lewis had what was supposed to be a white marriage that was just a legal formality that allowed her to stay in the country. Well, several months after that civil ceremony, she, um, around the age of 40, fell and broke her leg. She went into the hospital, and they discovered she had very advanced cancer in her leg. Uh, Lewis worked with the doctors and everything, and sort of meanwhile, in this strange situation, ended up falling in love with her. And the doctors said she had less than a week to live. Lewis managed to get a priest come. They were married in the hospital while she was in the hospital bed on her deathbed. The priest who married them had a reputation for a gift of healing. They prayed for her, and miraculously, her leg 
regenerated. They had x-rays where the bone and the thigh was gone, and then it came back. So they had three years of a beautiful relationship, and then her cancer came back ravagingly strong, and she died um, shortly before her 45th birthday, leaving her two children with Lewis. So he was trying to cope with all of that. So just a lot, a lot of suffering. So he did a lot of writing about suffering. The first one, The Problem of Pain, is probably the most well-known. And that essentially is a book that addresses the philosophical and intellectual problem of theodicy. And if you studied philosophy, you probably studied theodicy. And theodicy basically is, the whole idea is, if God is good and all-powerful, then why is there pain and suffering? That's a gross oversimplification, but that's, that's basically what it is. And the problem of pain is designed to address the, um, what you might call the apologetic argument uh, with respect to pain and suffering and how does that fit into a Christian framework of belief. So he wants to show that it is um, not an accident that there is pain and suffering in our world. So the problem of pain is essentially a philosophical intellectual book. It's not particularly an emotional book. On the other hand, um, in the last battle, uh, which is the last of the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a lot in that book about pain and suffering, the role of pain and suffering and loss and injustice, and how in the Christian worldview, because we believe that life doesn't end when our mortal bodies die, but that life in some sense actually really begins when we are freed from the mortal body and have our resurrection body and are living in the presence of Christ. And so for Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, that's living in Aslan's country. And so there's a lot of reflection in that book where you see um, the things that were wrong and hard to understand that when you get into Aslan's country, suddenly you see how they're part of this picture. So there's a lot of theology that's packed into that. A Grief Observed, which Lewis wrote um, right after Joy's death, um, is extremely emotional. It is essentially a journal of Lewis's ravaged emotions after the death of his wife where he is railing at God, shouting at God, saying, why did this happen? Why did you let me get to age 60 or whatever he was without falling in love and then have me fall in love and then take her away? How could you do that? And it's very, very, very honest. And it's very much like the book of Psalms uh, where you see um, David in the book of Psalms, you know, demanding, pounding on the door, asking God to vindicate him against his enemies. And if you've seen the movie Shadowlands, um, I just want to caution you that there are a lot of things that are nice about that movie, but it gets a lot of things really wrong. Um, one of the things it gets wrong is Lewis's entire personality, which is kind of important. Uh, <laughs> but besides that, leaving that part aside... The theological aspect is the worst part of it because the way the movie portrays things is Lewis is sort of a simpleton in terms of faith and that Joy's death really just completely derails his faith and he loses his faith and then comes back to kind of a spiritualism or something. Well, that's ridiculous. I mean, it's completely in the face of all of the evidence to the contrary. So... Uh, but I commend all three of those books. Um, they are really good. They're very different. It's like looking at suffering through different lenses, three different lenses. And then the other two things that I think are really important are the great divorce and the weight of glory. Um, both of those are pretty short. The great divorce is um, just so great. Just Lewis's imagination is so crazy, but... Uh, the Great Divorce is a book about hell, which doesn't sound particularly appealing. Uh, but the conceit that he comes up with is that hell offers bus tours that go to heaven. 
And so you can get on the bus and go to heaven and see what you think. But the people from hell get to heaven and they hate it. They're like, get me out of here. I don't like this place, which is, Lewis says it's a supposal. He says, don't think this is what it's really like, but I'm trying to show you some things through this. But it's it's a really great book. But the, the thing that Lewis really makes a strong case about in that book is the idea of selfishness. And that selfishness becomes what sends you to hell in some ways. That's a little bit of an overstatement, but... If all you care about is yourself, your own pleasure, the avoidance of pain in your own life, and sticking it to other people, um, that's not going to end well for you. And that the, the result of that is you become a certain sort of person. And there's this great quotation where Lewis says, there are only two groups of people, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. In other words, that there are people that literally choose hell. So, but the sort of the point of it is that selfishness breeds alienation, misery, and suffering. And that the flip side of that is unselfishness brings love and joy and peace and helps you to be able to perceive the things of the kingdom of God. Um, the weight of glory, the same thing we looked a little bit at snippets of the weight of glory. That is, depending on what week it is, if I, if I have to have two favorite books by Lewis, if I can have a long one and a short one, that would be the short one that would be my favorite. It is really, really good. But it has a long portion that we read part of in here about how important it is to look at the people around you and realize that each person around you is eternal. Each person is created in the image of God, marred with the distressing mask of sin, but each person has the potentiality in following Christ to become fully realized what we would one day think was a god or goddess, that somebody fully, the way God made them to be in heaven, we would be strongly tempted to worship. And Lewis says that we are every day, in one way or another, helping each other either to become more that type of glorious person or that sort of person that ends up in hell. And the, the other thing about hell and the great divorce, sorry, I'm jumping between the two, but um, the people are shadows, uh, which is another sort of great thing that you can play with. But the people are shadows, and one of them, one of the characters, when he comes up on the bus, he meets a guy he knew who was a murderer, and he is just beside himself that this murderer is in heaven. And he's like, I was a pretty good guy. What the hell are you doing here? He's like, you killed somebody. And then the guy's like, yes, but you know, that's all in the past now. And there's forgiveness for all of that. And the guy that I murdered is here too. And we are brothers now. And we want you to, and the guy's like, what? And he's like, he's like, I just want my rights. I want to stand on my rights. I did the right thing. I want my rights. And the, and the, the guy in heaven is like, uh, you shouldn't probably really say that very loud around here. That doesn't go over very well up here. And the guy's like, just shut up. I don't want any of your bleeding charity. And then the guy, you know, bleeding is pretty bad language in Britain. And the guy's like, yes, that's it. That's exactly what you need. The bleeding charity, Jesus on the cross, that's what you need. And the guy's like, I've had enough. I'm getting back on the bus. But you know, it's just, it's interesting because he's, he's talking about how so much suffering results from what you choose to focus on. If you choose to, no matter, we tend to think suffering is the inevitable result of bad circumstances. And Lewis says that is absolutely and totally wrong. That And scripture says that's absolutely and totally wrong too, by the way. So probably where Lewis stole the idea from. <laughs> but the, the point that he's making is that when we focus on ourselves and our own circumstances and we want to have the pity party with our little violin about woe is me, that that 
is going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that when we are focused on that and on our own suffering, then we are not doomed, but close to it. Whereas on the other hand, if we focus on Christ, if we focus on the things of his kingdom, if we focus on the suffering that he underwent, which is far worse than any suffering any of us will ever have to undergo, it changes our perspective. And if we begin to look at what we can do to serve others instead of focusing on our own stuff, then it frees us from this huge load and weight of baggage that we're carrying around. All right, so uh, very quickly uh, here with the problem of pain. So Lewis, poor Lewis, he was always being invited to write things by people who wanted to kind of use his reputation to get their project off the ground. But this particular invitation he decided was a good one because he felt like the, the whole idea of pain and suffering and the philosophical world, um, you know, we're in World War II now. Uh, we have still the people who are around from World War I. This is a big topic in philosophical circles right now. Um, nihilistic uh, atheism very much at the forefront in the philosophical world. Lewis felt like that it was a good time for an intellectual defense about pain and suffering. So he wrote this book. And the most famous quotation from it is, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And that's a great quotation, but it is overly simplistic in saying what the whole message of the book is. But there is truth in that. And he says God uses pain to get our attention. He uses suffering to get our attention. Because, unfortunately, people haven't really changed that much, despite what uh, the chronological snobbery folks would tell you. If you go way back to the book of Deuteronomy, if you haven't read Deuteronomy in a while, I would really encourage you to go read, especially Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is one of the great chapters of the Old Testament. But there's a whole part in Deuteronomy uh, when the Israelites have come into the Promised Land that talks about, do not forget the Lord your God. And it talks about, when you come to houses you have not built, vineyards you have not planted, all of these things, they're just a gift. Do not forget the Lord your God. Because our tendency, when we prosper, is to think, I was so smart and discerning. <laughs> By my own efforts, I have achieved all of this. And I deserve it. And Deuteronomy calls that out and says, no, no. And Lewis is very much of that same viewpoint that we need to be reminded. And whenever we try to get away from our dependence on God, bad things happen. And so part of the way, part of the role of pain and suffering is to draw us back to God. Um, he talks about the intellectual aspect that uh, if pain and suffering are irrational and not part of the framework, then your framework isn't very good. If your framework, if your worldview can't account for pain and suffering, then you need to trade it in and get a different one. Uh, so, and then this next part, I want to try to unpack this a little bit. He says, either there is no spirit behind the universe, or else a spirit indifferent to good and evil, or else an evil spirit. And basically what he's saying there is that when you look at nature, nature will tell you that there's a creator. Kind of like what we experience when we're looking at the trees. Nature will tell you there's a creator. And when you're looking at the dogwood and the crepe myrtle and the magnolia, and you're smelling the blossom, the creator seems quite benevolent. But if you happen to be living on the big island of Hawaii right now, I don't know if you've seen the news, but there's a huge volcano uh, on there that is spewing lava and all sorts of people are having to move and their houses are being destroyed and all of that. Um, that's part of creation as well. Hurricanes are part of creation, earthquakes. So there are a lot of things that are not so pleasant. There's also, much as PETA, do you all know what PETA is? Um, and there's some, a few, very few good things about PETA. 
But PETA's whole idea is that humans are only animals. Um, it's very much in the face of what we're talking about with metapoeia and what it means to be human. But the part of the idea with PETA is that no animal should ever be mistreated. And Lewis would have agreed with that. But PETA sort of conveniently forgets the food chain and that animals eat other animals. Carnivores eat other animals. And it's not pretty. You know, they tear them. Well, I won't go into all of it. But uh, the, the point that Lewis makes is that that is pain and suffering that is just right there in the mix of nature and creation. So if you just look at nature, you can get to a creator, but you might have some questions about what his character is like. So hold that thought. And then... If the universe is so bad, or even half so bad, how on earth did human beings come to attribute it to the activity of a wise and good creator? Pain is only a problem from the Christian perspective. If the universe is meaningless, pain is meaningless, just like everything else. So what Lewis is saying here is that from the beginning of time, people have thought that the creation was good, that the creator was good, all of those kinds of things, and there's this belief that is deep within the human heart um, that there's a good creator, there's a good father, um, if you want to anthropomorphize a little bit. But the, the whole idea is that there's goodness there somehow. And he says that is not necessarily rational, uh, but it seems to be something that is planted in the human heart. And the other thing that he says about that is that if you are an atheist, and everything's meaningless, you don't have to explain pain. It's just one more meaningless thing that's out there. It, it doesn't mean anything, so why bother? So it becomes kind of a straw man in that sense. And then he said, this is our consumerist mentality in this last quotation. If God were good, he would make his creatures perfectly happy. And if he were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. So if I'm not happy, then there is no God. Now, there's some logical issues with that, but leaving that aside, that's where a lot of people are coming from. And those of you that heard Jeff's sermon on Sunday, you know, he was saying, nowhere in Scripture does it say God wants you to be happy. Uh, it does talk a lot about God wanting you to be holy and God wanting you to experience joy, but ha this idea that we are owed happiness is not, not a scriptural idea. So this also ties in with the whole idea of free will. That was about 300 pages we just did there. So, um, so if you're not completely following it, don't worry. Um, free will is very much part of this. Lewis believed free will is very important. It's part of the way that God made us. And the reason for that is um, let's see, who shall I pick on? Well, we'll pick on Jerry and Suzanne. So <laughs> let's just say that Jerry is God, okay? Jerry is God, and he is lonely. And so he creates Suzanne so that he will no longer be lonely. And Suzanne has been created in such a way that every time that Jerry looks at her, she is forced by the way she's been created to look at him and say, I love you, you are so wonderful, how did I ever deserve you? And so every time he looks at her, she says that. But she's essentially a robot because she was programmed that she has to say that. So how emotionally satisfying is that? Not at all. It might be pretty good for a day or two, but you know, after that, after that, it doesn't really work for you. And what Lewis is saying is that if God created us so that we had no choice but to love him and respond to him, then it would be utterly meaningless that a relationship that's not freely chosen can't be a loving relationship. And so this whole idea of free will is built into the fabric of the way that God made creation. But the downside of free will is if you can choose the good, what else can you do? Yes, you can choose the bad. And so that means that there 
is always the possibility that things will go wrong. And it's just as we see in uh, the Genesis narrative at the beginning, where Adam eats the apple that Eve gave him. And the part that never gets talked about is that Adam's standing next to Eve the whole time the serpent's talking to her. The whole time, and he doesn't say a word. No one ever says anything about that part. So, But then when we get to Eve, and she eats the apple, and then God comes and speaks to them, and Adam says, the woman, her fault. But then he's like, well, that's not good enough. The woman, you gave me, God. God, it's your fault. You're the one that did it. You made her. You know, we're always looking for someone that we can blame. So right at the beginning, things went wrong. And you see this beautifully portrayed in The Magician's Nephew, um, which is the prequel to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and the creation of Narnia. It's very much the same sort of situation where evil is introduced, but Aslan has a plan to redeem it. Uh, I don't have time to go into that, but it's a great book. You should read it. So the next thing Lewis talks about is that we don't understand what the word goodness actually means, that we have conflated the idea of goodness and kindness with each other. And kindness, not really even kindness in the biblical sense, but sort of what he would call an ooey-gooey sentimentality sort of thing, sort of Hallmark card theology. And he said the problem with that is that God actually really loves us, which doesn't mean he's just going to pat us on the head and say, oh, Marshall, you're so nice. Um, He is going to have our best interests at heart. And there's a great book that I always forget the name of that is about a woman who was living uh, in the hills, I think, of Wales, where there were a lot of sheep and their sheep dogs and all of this, and she drew a lot of theological lessons from watching the sheep dogs and the sheep. Sheep, in case you didn't know this, are really, really stupid. So when you, all those wonderful things that we chant about, we are the sheep of his pastor. Yeah, we like to think of that cute little, like at the boutique, the little white fluffy lambs that you buy for a baby. Sheep are really stupid. They smell bad. They're not, it's not flattering to be called a sheep. But the point of this sheepdog thing is that sheep, in order to be kept alive, there are a lot of things that have, they have to have done to them that are not very pleasant. And they don't really understand what's going on. They don't understand why it's happening to them. But if you didn't do it, they would die. Like One of the things they have to do is go through what's called sheep dip, which is to prevent parasites and so the sheep get lined up and then they get like thrown into this vat of nasty smelling stuff and they're held under not long enough to drown them but long enough for all of their wool and skin to get soaked and then they like pop back out well they have to do that because if they don't they will get these parasites that will kill them but they don't understand what's happening and so Lewis is saying and that, that's probably a little bit of an overstatement. He's not saying we're quite that bad off. But in, in some ways, things befall us that we can't imagine. Why in the world did that happen? I didn't deserve that. And we don't understand why. And Lewis says we need to just get over that whole worrying about the why part and start thinking about what can we learn from the situation that we're in. And he has four beautiful analogies in this book from Scripture um, the love of the artist for his creation, the potter and the clay, the potter that keeps restriking the pot to get it absolutely right. Um, then the love of man for beast, which is the um, many images about Jesus as the shepherd of the sheep. Uh, the love of father for son, which we see in Jesus talking about as the father has loved me, so I've loved you. Or in that part where Jesus says, you know, if a father knows how to give his son good gifts, how much more, and then the parable of the prodigal son, all of those kinds of things. And then finally, the marriage analogy, which all through the Old Testament, uh, Israel's the bride of Christ, and then in the New Testament, the church, the bride of Christ, all of that. All of these analogies run all through Scripture, and they have in common this idea that true love is about perfecting the beloved. Now, that doesn't mean that our job is to perfect the people that we love. 
um, because we don't know what God's perfection for them is. But that is God's role. And God may accept us as we are, but he is not going to leave us there. And this is something Jeff talks about a lot, um, that we are saved from something, but we're saved for something. That God desires to transform us and use us, and that he wants us to be fully what we were created to be. And that part of that involves pruning, which we just heard about in the sermon. Uh, another part of this that's really huge, we've talked before about how the incarnation is really kind of the core of Lewis's theology, how important it is that God chose to enter into his own creation. And so in the uh, frontispiece to the problem of pain, there's this little quotation from George MacDonald that says, the son of God suffered unto death, not that, sorry, not that men might not suffer, but that their sufferings might be like his. For Lewis, ultimately, all suffering should point us to the cross, and then when it points us to the cross, then it, we should have the same attitude that Jesus did, who, that he saw the cross, he set his eyes forward to move toward the cross, but it was because of the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. And so for us, we set our eyes, we endure the suffering, but we know that there's joy on the other side of that, not in our circumstances, but in what God is going to do through using that. So uh, this part about heaven, Lewis says a Christian who tries to explain suffering and pain without thinking about heaven is really missing the point. Because as we've talked about in a lot of Lewis's work, Lewis is very strong on the idea that you find expressed, I think, most fully in the book of Hebrews, that we are made for another country, that our true citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven, that this, this world that we're in is a passing shadow. And so if we are going through suffering here, uh, one of the, the metaphors, Lewis doesn't use this one, but one that you hear sometimes is the whole idea of uh, the process that a butterfly goes through, you know, starting uh, with that chrysalis and then eventually breaking out of that and being a beautiful butterfly. Um, you wouldn't think that that could ever happen. It's a very bizarre sort of transformation. But it's not unlike what God's plan for us is that our ultimate destiny is not on this earth. Our ultimate destiny is to be who we were created to be in God's kingdom. And so if you don't believe that death is the end, that gives you a completely different perspective on things. And the last battle is particularly good at that. Uh, one of the things Lewis talks about a lot is how important it is to trust God. Screwtape Letters is full of ways that Satan is trying to get in there and mess with uh in that book, what they called the patient, the person who's trying to follow Christ, to get in there and erode their trust in God. And I'm going to get this quotation wrong, but it's something along the lines of the, the tempter is saying to um, Wormwood, who's trying to, the screw tape is the old tempter, Wormwood, the young tempter who's working with the patient. And he says, our cause, that is the cause of Satan, is never in more danger than when a Christian from whom all feelings and supports have been removed and whose faith is at its lowest ebb still chooses to pray. And it's basically, the, the real quotation is much better than that, but the, the point of it is that when we persevere with doing what scripture tells us when we persevere in following Jesus, even when the road is hard and dark and we do not understand what is going on, that that is the time where blessing can result. But it's also the time that we need our Ebenezers. And Ebenezer, uh, just a little aside with chronological snobbery, hymnal revisers, who are very low on my list. <laughs> Hymnal revisers have taken one of the great hymns of Christendom, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, and they have 
dumbed down the second verse because the second verse says, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy grace I've come, and I, ho I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Well, the hymn writers think, well, nobody knows what an Ebenezer is, so let's just take that out. Well, I'm sorry, but that's one of the points of the entire hymn. Um, for those of you who don't know, an Ebenezer, the first place that occurs is in the book of Joshua. And when the Israelites are getting ready to cross into the promised land, and they're so excited, and they get just on the other side of the river, and the river is at flood stage. And they're like, really? <laughs> and they don't know what to do. And so God speaks to them and says, take the Ark of the Covenant, your most precious possession, and put it in the hands of the priest and walk into the floodwaters. Well, that's crazy. Because that way they kill the priest and lose the Ark of the Covenant. But that's what God tells them to do. So they do that. They walk in. There's a miracle. They walk across the Jordan. They walk across these huge flat river rocks in the bottom of the Jordan River. And when they get to the other side, Joshua says, pull out some of those huge rocks that are on the bottom of the river and stack them by the side of the river to remind you that God miraculously brought you into this land so that you will never forget the love and provision of your God. And that is an Ebenezer. That's what the monument, the stack of stones is. So each of us has our own Ebenezers in our lives, times where God has been faithful, done something miraculous, and when we are in times of suffering, those are the things that we need to remind ourselves of. And that's why in the hymn it says, Here I raise my Ebenezer. In this time when he's struggling and he's wandering, he raises his Ebenezer about how God saved him. And y'all probably heard the story of that hymn because I preach about it a lot. But just in case you forgot, um, Richard Robinson was about 17. He had grown up... Um, on the streets of London, this is in the 18th century, he had a godly mother, but bad family situation, ran away, became an alcoholic when he was an early teenager, was a thief, um, was a member of a gang, um, and they heard George Whitfield was coming to preach, and they thought it would be hilarious to go in there and disrupt George Whitfield. So they robbed a vegetable stand of its rotten vegetables, and literally went into the auditorium prepared to pelt George Whitfield with rotten tomatoes and various other nasty things. And when he went in, he listened to Whitfield's message and was converted completely to Christianity in this dramatic turnaround. And he wrote that hymn when he was 21, Whoa. which is pretty astounding. Um, but Ebenezer's are really, really, really important. And that whole thing of looking for what we can learn, praying that God would show us what he wants us to learn in the situation of suffering. Um, Austin Ferrer, who we talked about that uh, Lewis dedicated uh, a couple of his books to, great theologian, head of Keeble College, Oxford. Ferrer has a very helpful uh, distinction between a puzzle and a mystery. And he says the problem for most of us is that we look at suffering and we want it to be like a puzzle. And it's like you're working on a puzzle and there's that one piece that you need to be able to finish it. And it drives you crazy. And all you can think about is trying to find that one piece. And you look all over and you spend all this energy. You turn your house upside down. And Ferris says, that's not the way suffering works. That it's not like when you finally get that piece, then all of a sudden it's all going to make sense and everything's going to be fine. like, oh, okay, and then move on. He says, instead, suffering is a profound mystery about our being perfected in the image of God. And that if we begin to see it as a mystery and not a puzzle, we'll direct our energy toward opening our hearts and seeking the transformation that the Holy Spirit wants to do in us instead of solving the puzzle. Um, a grief observed, uh, this is just to give you a little example of the italics part. Where is God? Go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. 
After that, silence. Well, that doesn't sound like the great apologist of the Christian faith. Uh, but that's very real. I think all of us have probably had times when we were praying where that is what it felt like. And Lewis moves through these stages of grief and his railing honestly at God. Um, one of the things that I love about this is there's nothing that God doesn't know about us and why we think that we can like hide when we're feeling things like this. It's sort of silly. It's like the child that you know says peekaboo, you know, and <laughs> they think you can't see them because their eyes are covered. Uh, but the point of this is that the testing is not a testing of God, but a testing of Lewis and his faith. And again, very much like what you see in the book of Psalms. So a grief observed, McGrath um, has a good quotation in the chapter. He says, it's a narrative of the testing and maturing of faith, not simply its recovery and certainly not its loss. And then the tipping point comes when Lewis wishes he could have been the one to suffer rather than his wife, Joy. A willingness to take on pain and suffering in order that the beloved might be spared its worst. God did this on the cross of Christ. God could and did bear the suffering. And this whole idea of bearing burdens, bearing suffering, is all through Scripture. And Steve was just telling me tonight he had been reading in Chronicles, the thing about bearing burdens in Chronicles. Most of us are familiar with the New Testament passage that says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And part of Lewis's theology um, that was really developed by his friend Charles Williams in the Inklings is that this whole idea of burden bearing is part and parcel of what it really means to radically live out the Christian faith. And that when we don't do that, when we keep our needs to ourselves and we try to meet our own needs or expect God to miraculously do everything without using his people, that we short-circuit the work of the Holy Spirit and live shallow and impoverished lives. And in Williams's book, Descent into Hell, which is a very bizarre book in some ways, but really great book in others, he really develops this burden-bearing idea. And your hand, there's a handout uh, that's a little meditation from an Orthodox priest on that book that I would commend to you, uh, because this is something that most of us are not very good at, especially in the South where you used to be asked, how are you? And the correct response is, fine. <laughs> you know, no matter what is actually happening in your life. And you know, maybe you don't want to tell the cashier, okay? That's, <laughs> that's appropriate. But you should have people in your life that you actually talk about your burdens and you pray for one another. And one of the things that Lewis believed is sometimes God would send you situations that were beyond your capacity to handle in order to deepen your fellowship with the other people that he had called or placed in your life. Because if everything is going fine all the time, there's no opportunity to go deeper. So uh, part of the whole thing here is that choosing what you focus on during times of suffering is unbelievably important. And the problem is that most of us choose to focus on our circumstances and trying to fix them rather than focusing on God, focusing on Christ on the cross and thinking about what might God be trying to teach us. And one of the great examples of this, and most of you probably know this, but the book, the book of Philippians, which is the book that talks more about joy than any other book in the New Testament, was written from prison when Paul is in a jail cell chained to the wall. Now, most of us have never, I hope, uh, <laughs> been in a jail cell chained to the wall. And most of us, or I shouldn't put that on you, I'll say if I were in a jail cell chained to the wall, I would be thinking about what can I do to get out of here? And all of my energy would be focused on that. I would not be penning an epistle about joy. But the, the point of Philippians is that it is not based on our circumstances. And we live in a culture that tells us over and over again, you deserve to be comfortable. You've earned it. You deserve a break today. You know, all of these kinds of things. They're just nowhere in the kingdom of God. And we, we impoverish ourselves 
because we don't let God use suffering um, in the way that he intended. All right, we are um, out of time. Reflect on this. Think, think, about, think about a situation where you've encountered suffering and what you chose to focus on, and then think about how are suffering and joy related in the Christian faith. Because you will notice, uh, particularly if you study the saints, that there's a huge connection between the two. So let me close this with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the work that Lewis did on this topic of suffering. And Lord, we confess to you that we are often wimps when it comes to that, that we, we don't want to learn the things that come to us through suffering. Lord, we pray that you would fire our hearts with love for you and for the things of your kingdom, that you would help us to walk through times of suffering in such a way that we would grow deeply in our love for you and the things of your kingdom. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Very good. Thank you.